0: Lord, if there's things that need to be confessed, if repentance needs to happen tonight, Lord, please be so present that we would sense that. Be so near that we would hear you speak that to us. And that, God, we would just know a fuller joy in the gospel, in, in what you've done for us, in your blood shed for us, that we would more fully understand that as we take um, of these elements together as your body, remembering what you did for us, Lord, remembering uh, the salvation that we enjoy today. Lord, thank you that you are so good and merciful. God, what what rejoicing is, is due because of that truth. Thank you so much, Lord. May we see that and tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today is historically known as Good Friday, and what I'd like to do this evening is just continue our march through the Passion Week as we remember all that happened uh, leading up to the resurrection, leading up to what we're going to celebrate on Sunday in just three days. And as we consider that this evening... Uh, What I'd like to do is I'd like to actually move back a day in Passion Week and begin looking at what happened on Thursday, Uh, because as you look at the events of Thursday going into Friday, there's really no break in the events. Uh, The Passover begins with the evening meal, which took place on Thursday, because this is when the first Passover meal took place in Exodus chapter number 12. Uh, Luke 22, verse number 7 says, the day of unleavened bread came. When the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And when you read Exodus chapter 12, you see that that sacrificial lamb was sacrificed in the evening. So the day of Passover began Thursday evening and it is carried through the next day on Friday. On Thursdays, of course, the disciples began to prepare to uh, observe the traditional feasts. To commemorate God's deliverance through their exodus out of Egypt. The day probably would have been filled with uh, excitement. Uh, But it also would have been, to some degree, very normal. Uh, This was a holiday that the people had been celebrating for thousands of years. And so now, no doubt, they looked forward to it every year, and they were excited about it. And given the events uh, that had happened that week, there was probably some additional anticipation in their minds. Uh, But the Passover itself was nothing new for these people. However, despite the ordinariness of these events... The Bible tells us that Jesus was greatly looking forward to this meal because He was going to use this ancient ritual to institute something new. We read about it in Luke chapter number 22, verses 14 through 20. The Bible says, When the hour came, He reclined at the table and the apostles with Him. Then He said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until the fulfilled kingdom, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he said, take this and share it among you. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant In my blood, which is poured out for you. So, in the middle of this Passover meal, Jesus uses the elements as signs to show the type of death that he would die, and in so doing, he institutes a new and better covenant. From now on, his disciples would remember a new and better deliverance. The bread and cup and communion serve as signs, and they remind us of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. As we saw a few weeks ago when we were studying this ordinance, we saw that throughout Scripture, eating and drinking were common practices when people were in the presence of God. This is because it was symbolic of their relationship and communion with Him. Uh, If you go all the way back to the book of Exodus, when the leaders of Israel went up to Mount Sinai to meet God, they beheld God, and then the Bible tells us that they ate and drank in His presence. In the book of Deuteronomy, The people of Israel would tithe their crops so that they could take that 10% of what they grew and they could take that 10% of their crops and then they would use it to feast before the Lord at the annual festival where our story takes place. In the Old Testament, they had sacrifices and ceremonies and meals that would point to the fact that their sins were not yet paid for because the sacrifices had to be repeated year after year, the book of Hebrews tells us. And so as Jesus institutes this very first communion, he's giving us a better meal because it reminds us that our sins have been forever paid for. There's no more sacrifice that needs to be made. Jesus is showing us that he is the fulfillment of what the Passover was a shadow of. And after they had finished eating, what Jesus does next is incredibly remarkable. Realizing that the stage was set, he gets up from dinner And begins to wash his disciples feet this included judas's feet who he knew would betray him this includes peter's feet who he knew would deny him he demonstrates in this moment to his disciples that true greatness is found in humble service and that true happiness is found in faith-filled obedience after this the bible tells us that jesus became troubled jesus shares with his disciples that one of them is going to betray him which causes the disciples to get concerned, and then they begin arguing about which disciple it was going to be that would betray Him. And the Bible tells us in Luke 22 that this argument turns into an argument about which one of them was the greatest. The powerful lesson that was just given has been forgotten. It's amazing how fast we as humans can default into self-preservation mode. Oh, not me, Lord. No, I'm the greatest. After Jesus reveals his betrayer, Judas. Judas gets up and leaves. But the disciples are confused. They think Jesus sent Judas off to run an errand, the Bible tells us in John 13. And so Jesus then takes this opportunity to teach his disciples one final time before he's crucified. In John 13 through 16, Jesus instructs his disciples about the Holy Spirit and our relationship with him. He teaches us that the only way anyone can have a relationship with God the Father is through Jesus the Son. And he tells us that the only place to find true, lasting, eternal peace is in him. He tells them that they will face suffering in this world, but that the Holy Spirit will be with them through that. And above all, he gives them a new commandment, love. To love as I have loved you, Jesus says. After all this, the disciples sing, and then they retreat to the Mount of Olives, and they go into the Garden of Gethsemane. And as the sun sets on Thursday, Jesus asks that his disciples stay up and pray with him because he is in deep distress. He pours out his heart to his disciples, and he says, would you please please, just stay with me? Just stay and pray with me because my soul is deeply troubled. And then, in, in his anguish, he retreats a little farther away, and he goes and he pours out his heart to God the Father, and he begs, He begs God if there's any possible alternative, but ultimately He willingly surrenders to the plan that has been set for eons past. Three times He goes back and finds His disciples, His closest friends, asleep. We see this in Mark 14. After the third time, as they awaken from their embarrassed, tired state, they see Judas returning. That might not have surprised him initially, but as they begin to wake up, they realize he's not alone. He's followed by an angry mob. And in one act of ironic betrayal, he kisses Jesus. That was the signal. The mob moves in to arrest Jesus. As Peter's waking up, he realizes what's going on. He pulls out his sword, and he lops off the high priest's servant's ear. Jesus stops Peter from his violent response, and he heals the man. Jesus tells Peter, the scriptures must be fulfilled. This has to happen. Then all the disciples who mere hours before, who were swearing their loyalty to Jesus, arguing which would be the greatest, abandon him. Jesus is of course then taken to the high priest And all the religious leaders are assembled, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, religious groups that are often at odds with each other, now united in their purpose to arrest and kill Jesus. Court was now in session. These leaders were, they wanted Jesus dead so badly that they were even willing to plant people in this fake court to give fake testimonies so that they could end Jesus' life. Unfortunately for their plans, it doesn't work. The stories are inconsistent. Jesus remained silent, further fulfilling prophecies. And finally, and in his exasperated state, in his state of de- desperation, the high priest point blank asks Jesus, are you the Messiah? Jesus responds in Mark 14, verse 62, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with clouds, with the clouds of heaven. Now, Jesus chose his words carefully here. Throughout the Old Testament, whenever you see prophetic language used or you see language of judgment used, you will often see God coming in power in the clouds. And so Jesus is saying, I am, and there will be a day when you will see judgment. Of course, the high priest realized this, but he had all he needed. They now had Jesus on record for blasphemy. They can now condemn him to death. Falling from a distance while this was going on was Peter. He witnessed this rigged court from afar, but unfortunately for Peter, he was recognized. Three times, in fact. Each time he's recognized, though, he denies that he knows Jesus, and he denies this more and more vehemently, in fact, until the Bible tells us that he's literally cursing and swearing that he does not know Jesus. And after the third time, he hears a rooster crow, and then in an agonizing moment, Jesus looks up, and the Bible tells us he sees Peter. Peter and Jesus lock eyes in that moment, and as they lock eyes, Peter's mind goes back to when Jesus predicted that this would happen, and Peter remembers how he said that he would die before he would ever deny Jesus. Overcome with grief, Peter leaves and weeps bitterly, Luke 22 tells us. After Jesus sees Peter deny him, the crowds blindfold him and beat him, and then mockingly ask, Prophesy who it was that hit you. If you're really the Messiah, if you're really a prophet, tell us who was it? And that's how Thursday ends. The time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners, Mark 14 says. And while this night turns to today, while Thursday fades into Friday, there's no break in the events taking place. We've seen this break throughout the week, but when Thursday turns into Friday, there's no break. There's no hiking back to Bethany in the evening to rest and sleep and prepare for the next day. There's no early morning walks with theology lessons. There's no morning breakfast on the trail. As dawn breaks on Friday, the trial continues. After the chief priests and other religious leaders are confident they have reason to execute Jesus, they then take him to Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor over this region. And as a people who were ruled by a foreign government, the Jewish people were not allowed to carry out the death penalty, the Bible tells us in John 18. And so the entire crowd that is at the chief priest's place, the entire crowd, the entire angry mob, all the religious leaders, they get up and they march along with the religious leaders as they bring Jesus to Pilate. And they accuse him of three things as they bring him to him. They accuse Jesus of misleading the nation. They accuse Jesus of opposing the payment of taxes to Caesar, both of which had already been proven false. And then they accuse Jesus of claiming to be the Messiah, a king. And as they bring Jesus to Pilate, uh, the book of Luke tells us that they're careful not to go into Pilate's headquarters. To go into this Gentile place would make them unclean, and it was, after all, the Passover. They were being careful to remain ceremonial clean so that they could observe the rituals of that day. They made sure to keep the outer appearance of adherence to the law while completely ignoring its true meaning, while completely crucifying and murdering the very one who fulfilled the law in their place. They were doing this while they were prophesying, killing the one who was prophesied and foretold of, whitewashed tombs up until the end. Pilate, of course, skips over the first two accusations, and he asks if Jesus is, in fact, a king. This is intriguing to Pilate. He asks Jesus, "'Are you a king?' Pilate answers that he is, or Jesus answers that he is. Jesus tells us in John 18, in fact, this is what he was born to be. This is what he had come into the world to do, but that his kingdom wasn't of this world. As Jesus is saying this, the chief priests and the leaders, they continue to accuse Jesus from outside the headquarters. They loudly and vehemently shoot accusations towards Pilate about Jesus. And so Pilate begins questioning Jesus about these other charges, but as he does so, Jesus remains silent, again fulfilling prophecy. This amazes Pilate. As Pilate is questioning him, he can find no reason for executing this man, but the the Pharisees insist. And as they are insisting that Jesus be killed, they tell Pilate that Jesus has been stirring up people throughout all of Judea from even Galilee. When Pilate hears this, he decides, oh, now I have an out. Now I have a way to pass the buck. Unsure of what to do, Pilate sees his way out. He doesn't want to go against this angry mob, but he also doesn't want to execute an innocent person. And learning he's from Galilee, he sees his way out. Jesus is from Galilee, and uh, uh, Pilate realizes that's Herod's jurisdiction, So he sends Jesus to his political rival, hoping to get himself out of a difficult spot. This actually, the Bible tells us, excites Herod. He's heard of Jesus. He's hoping to see a miracle, the Bible says. Who doesn't love a good parlor trick? What a way to begin the day, Herod is no doubt thinking. This is going to be awesome. But then the entire process repeats itself. The the religious leaders and the angry mob, they follow as Jesus is taken to Herod And then they again begin vehemently accusing Jesus. Hearing these accusations, Herod himself questions Jesus, but Jesus is again silent. Not getting the early morning show that he had hoped for, Herod and his soldiers begin to mock Jesus. Then they send him back to Pilate. Realizing he isn't going to get out of this situation, Pilate calls the religious leaders and the angry mob together from outside his headquarters, and he insists that he can find no reason for executing Jesus. But they don't care. They demand that Pilate crucifies him. So trying to keep himself from executing an innocent person, Herod offers to release Jesus as was his custom during the Passover. Every year at the Passover, Pilate would release a prisoner back to the people, but the crowd was ready for, they were ready for this, And as Pilate offers to release Jesus, instead of accepting Jesus, they demand that he releases Barabbas. He was a rebel and a murderer, the Bible tells us. It seems that this crowd who was earlier this week hailing Jesus as their king was now calling for his crucifixion. Realizing Jesus wasn't going to be the powerful leader that they hoped for, they realigned themselves with the religious leaders to play it safe. Still perplexed and uncertain of what to do, Pilate goes back into the headquarters, back to Jesus, and he has him beaten and flogged. The cruel and callous Roman soldiers create a mock crown of thorns that they beat into his head, and they mockingly place a purple robe on his bleeding and torn back. They mock him, and they slap him. Pilate then drags Jesus out, the beaten and humiliated Jesus. He brings out before the crowd, and he says, here is your king. But with one voice they shout, crucify him. He has claimed to be the son of God. He deserves death. Now panic begins to fill Pilate. Son of God, who is this man? He takes Jesus back into the headquarters and perplexed at the silence of Jesus, he asks Jesus, why won't you answer me? Don't you realize I have the authority to release you or to kill you? <laughs> to which Jesus so humbly answers in John 19, You would have no authority over me at all if, you hadn't been, if it hadn't been given you from above. This is the why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Further perplexed, Pilate now takes more serious action. Again, he brings Jesus out before the people. But this time, the Bible tells us that he sits in the judge's seat. He sits, he assumes the place of judgment. He is going to pass a verdict. And in one last ditch effort, he offers to release Jesus. He knows he is innocent, but he sees this angry mob is beginning to turn into a riot, Matthew 27 tells us. And he makes the easy decision to pacify the crowd. And he has Jesus flogged. And he turns him over to be crucified. Now, history tells us that this flogging or scourging, as it's often called, happened when a person was, or when this happened, a person was stripped naked, tied to a post, and then flogged across the back and the legs, basically across the entire back of a person by Roman soldiers. It was usually done with wooden staves or whips with leather thongs into which small pieces of bone were tied. Under Jewish law, flogging like this was limited to to 40 blows, but Roman law had no such limit. Scourging was intended to significantly weaken the victim before crucifixion, and it resulted in deep wounding, severe pain and bleeding. Frequently, the victim would pass out during the procedure, and it wasn't uncommon for them to die while this happened. The victim was then usually taunted Forced to carry the crossbar of his cross tied across his soldiers to the place of execution. And we see all this playing out in the Gospel of Matthew. Historians estimate that that crossbar typically weighed about 125 pounds. A set of Roman guards commanded by a centurion would accompany the condemned to the place of execution and they would stay on duty until the victim had died. A herald would walk ahead on the way to the place of uh, crucifixion, announcing what was taking place while bystanders would deride and taunt the condemned. Once the victim was at the place of crucifixion, if they weren't already naked, they were stripped and made to lie on their wounded back with their arms extended along the crossbar of the cross. Their arms were tied to the beam or fixed using iron nails in their wrists or upper forearms. The crossbar and the victim were then lifted and fixed onto the center post of the cross and their feet were tied or nailed to it. Often the feet would be nailed to the sides of the cross or on top of each other on the front. Usually a single nail would be driven through the upper bones of the feet giving the victim just enough stability with his knees bent to push up on that nail, gasping for breath while they slowly died. It was common for soldiers to divide the victim's clothing among themselves while they waited for them to die. We see this also happening to Jesus. Crucifixion would take anywhere from three to four hours to three to four days. If there was reason to expedite the death or to ensure that death had set in, the legs of the victim would be broken, or a spear would have stabbed the victim through the heart, from the upper abdomen into the chest, through the heart. We again see this happening with Jesus. The religious leaders wanted to make sure they could continue with the Passover and that this hideous sight wasn't there to ruin their religious festival. The main cause of death in the majority of victims would have been asphyxiation from severely hampered respiration with secondary cardiovascular collapse. The slow death would have included multi-organ failure caused by circulatory collapse due to severe blood or fluid loss that kept the heart from beating the way it should have. Death by crucifixion was the very fulfillment of the word excruciating. In fact, the Latin word excruciate comes from a derivative of the cross. It was torturous, it was agonizing. It was meant to be the most torturous, agonizing and humiliating way to execute criminals. This was done by Romans to declare their might and scare the people they had conquered into submission. Roman citizens by law weren't allowed to be crucified. It was a horrendous thing. And Mark's gospel in Mark chapter number 15 records for us that all this took place by 9 a.m. At 9 a.m., Jesus was hanging on the cross after being up all night after a mock, execu- after a mock trial and a, being beaten and flogged and scourged, and at 9 a.m. on Friday morning, He hangs there on the cross. As He's hanging on the cross, the crowds begin to mock. The religious leaders are not missing their opportunity to rub this whole thing in the face of Jesus. They mock, saying, if if you're the Messiah, save yourself from this. Come down from the cross and we'll believe that you're the king. We'll believe that you're really the prophet. We'll really believe you're the Messiah if you could just save yourself from all this. Jesus was crucified between two criminals, and these two criminals join in on the mocking. And for three hours, the Bible tells us, Jesus is mocked. He is spat on. His clothes are gambled over while he's being tortured alive. And as he hung on that cross, one of the criminals continues to hurl his insults. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. If this was real, if you really were the Messiah, come down, save yourself, save us from this agony, save us from this torment. But as he was doing so, something changed in the heart of one of the other criminals. He realized that they deserve to die, but Jesus didn't. And he corrects the other criminal, and as he does so, with a simple request, he asks that Jesus would just remember him when his kingdom comes. He simply says, and Jesus simply responds, today you'll be with me in paradise. What an amazing reality. After three hours, At 12 in the afternoon, Jesus is being tortured alive, being mocked, being ridiculed, being spat on, clothes being gambled. After three hours of this, the entire land goes black. In amidst one of the most agonizing ways to slowly die, Jesus begins to endure a horror that he had never known from all of eternity past. He willingly submits himself to the wrath of God for us. He became a curse for us, Galatians 3. He became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5. And for an additional three agonizing hours, Jesus willingly takes the full force of God's righteous wrath against sin. And he did this for you. He did this for me. We see from Psalm 18, this is the moment the builders have rejected the cornerstone. Jesus has become the sacrifice to end all sacrifice. And after six brutal hours on the cross, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus allowed himself to willingly be abandoned so that you and I would never have to be abandoned again. Jesus then cries out with a loud voice, It is finished. Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And the Bible says he breathed his last. Something amazing happens at this moment. As Jesus cries out, it is finished. As Jesus gives himself to the Spirit, as Jesus gives his Spirit to the Father. And as Jesus breathes his last, something amazing happens. There was a temple nearby, and in that temple there was a sanctuary. The sanctuary of the temple was this room that was kept separate. There was a curtain that kept this room separate because that room was special. That room was where the presence of God would come down. You couldn't just go into that room when the presence of God was there. In fact, the high priest could only go into this sanctuary at certain points after certain religious uh, rituals had been done and had been observed. And at this moment, at the moment Jesus cries out, it is finished, that curtain that separated everybody else from the presence of God is split right down the middle. There is no more separation. We can now boldly go into the presence of God because Jesus declared, it is finished. But that's not all. As Jesus cries out, it is finished, there's an earthquake. An earthquake that is so powerful, the Bible tells us that rocks are literally split into two. And that's not all. As the temple curtain is torn in two, as the earth is literally quaking, the Bible tells us that tombs are open and many dead saints come back to life. After Jesus' resurrection, they actually leave their tombs. And the Bible tells us that many people see these dead saints walking around Jerusalem. This is such a powerful moment that the created world is responding. The darkness that covered the land silenced the mocking crowd. The old covenant is replaced with the new and better covenant. The earth quakes. Saints are coming back to life. This powerful moment gives us such an amazing preview of what's going to happen when Jesus, our King, returns in full force one day. This moment is so visibly powerful that the pagan Roman soldier who just helped hang Jesus on the cross is converted. Matthew 27, verse 54, when the centurion, the guy who was overseeing this whole crucifixion, and those around him who were keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified and said, truly, this man was the Son of God. After Jesus' death, two of Jesus' secret followers, if we could use that phrase, no longer hide their allegiance to him. Joseph, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, along with Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, both come forward to take the body of Jesus to ensure that it is buried with dignity. They want to make sure that he's buried in accordance to their customs. They had opposed the plan of the religious leaders, the Bible tells us, but now they were letting their full allegiance be known. They were no longer in fear of what their fellow Sanhedrin and Pharisees would think. Seeing the sacrifice of the man they quietly put their faith in led them into a public display. They wanted to make sure that this man who they placed their faith and trust in was buried with dignity because there was no dignity about the way he was treated. At this point, the eleven disciples had mostly scattered. Judas, seeing everything that took place, was overcome with guilt and takes his own life. Several of the women who supported Jesus, that supported his entire ministry, they were there, but the Bible tells us they were watching from afar off, no doubt in fear for their safety, but they're emotionally crushed. All their hopes, all their dreams, all the plans, everything they had been working towards the last three years seemed to have come crashing down in less than 24 hours. Now we know over 2,000 years removed, what happens? We know what happens on the third day, yeah. resurrection. But for a moment, I want, to put, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of those disciples. Jesus was the one they had been anticipating for hundreds of years, thousands of years. And now he lay dead in the tomb. How could this day be called good? To answer that, I want to turn to the very first book of the Bible, Look at Genesis. At the end of Genesis, Joseph's brothers, if you're familiar with the story, are fearful that Joseph is going to seek revenge for the cruel way they treated him. But Joseph says in, Joseph, in Genesis 15, 20, you planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. You see, what Judas did on Thursday and Friday, he meant it for evil. He planned it for evil. The religious leaders planned these events for evil. Pilate meant it for evil. The mob meant it for evil. Sin meant all this for evil. But God, God planned it for good. On this darkest of days, God was doing his greatest work. God is never to blame for evil, but he is always working for our good. As Peter emboldened and filled with the Holy Spirit, would soon preach. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. Joseph's words thousands of years prior to this day fly over Friday like a banner of God's sovereign work. Yes, many meant this day for evil, but God meant it for good. That is why we call today Good Friday. Because today we remember how our Savior died in our place. Let's pray. God, all the depths and the riches of your wisdom and knowledge. The word of this cross we have looked at this evening is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it is our power to those of us who are being saved. Father, you destroyed the wisdom of the wise and You set aside the intelligence of the intelligent and you made the world's wisdom foolish. How unsearchable are your judgment and how untraceable are your ways for who has known your mind? Who has been your counselor, God? You've chosen what is insignificant and despised in this world, an instrument of torture and death to bring about our salvation. You were pleased to save us who believe through the foolishness of what is preached, of what we just looked at, Christ crucified. Who to us who believe is the power and wisdom of God. From you comes our righteousness, our sanctification and our redemption. Lord, we can boast in nothing but you. From you and through you and to you are all things. Through Christ, you reconciled us back to yourself by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And I pray that we as the Fresno Church would be rooted and firmly established in love. And that we would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length, width, height, and depth of your love. Father, our minds are so incapable, but I pray that we would know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that we may be filled with all your fullness. We pray this because you're able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to your power that works in us. To you be the glory forever. Amen.